Welcome to the online broadcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud online until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent time in prison, and since that point, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the people like I used to be. And, you know, the last several episodes that we've done has been very focused on online merchants and helping them and you protect your company against payment fraud. And, you know, the biggest reason we've done that is because that's where my career has been. That's where a lot of Brett's consulting has been. And we know how much information is needed for you. But that said, we also know that there are a lot of consumers that just don't know where to go to learn about this, you know, how to protect yourself, what's going on, like what you should even know. There's probably a lot of things that you do in your daily life that you don't realize are actually opening you up to become a victim of fraud. So this is kind of going to be like a turning point episode in a way where we're really going to be providing content that will help both online companies and consumers protect themselves against fraud. For consumers, just a refresher in case you didn't hear the introduction episode, if your credit card or payment method or even if your account is taken over with an online company, that merchant is responsible for the fraud that happens. They have to pay you back when your credit card is stolen and used on their site. So that's why it's important. And for merchants, it's really important because you know, in a way, you can think of it as the customers of our customers are our customers, right? That just sounded so confusing. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> basically, if, you know, this might be really ideological, but if we're able to provide consumers with some tips on how to protect themselves, I think that that will help overall commerce as well. So really, our true purpose is to use this platform to help people protect themselves and their companies against payment fraud. So that said, the first topic we're going to discuss on this format is the dark web. And the reason that we're doing that is because it seems like it's something that everyone has questions about that don't understand how it works. <laughs> I honestly don't even understand how it works. Definitely not as well as Brett for <laughs> obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't the one out of the two of us that founded the very first dark web forum for buying and selling oh, credit cards. Well, there was that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why I say that. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, really, it's a good opportunity to learn what is the dark web and how is it being used to commit fraud? Because it's actually can be used for a lot of illicit activity, as we'll discuss. But specifically, how is it being used to, you know, buy and sell your own social security number? Or how is it being used to discuss how an easy loophole to commit fraud against your business? So with that said, I already just explained that we do have a resident dark web expert on this podcast, so we're just going to pick his brain a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, why don't we start with something kind of easy? What is the dark web? How do you describe it when people ask you that wow, question? Wow, that, that's starting easy, is it? Right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's not open-ended at all, right? No, no, not at all. <laughs> so, so 
what is the dark web? Let's start by explaining the internet in general. All right, so you have three sections. You have the surface web, the deep web, and the dark web. The, the, the surface web is basically anything that you can find via Google. So if you do a Google search, that is surface web stuff. So uh, it's 4% of the entire internet, at most 4%. Some estimates say it's only 3%. The other 96% is the deep web, and that's stuff like medical records, bank account information, uh, email information, anything that's not cataloged or has a domain listing to it, or anything that's behind a wall. All that information is, is part of the deep web. Oh, so like intranet, like a company's intranet, or I've never heard it described like that before. So you mean like anything, any activity that isn't open and accessible to everyone is right. considered the deep web. Absolutely. Huh. So that that's the deep web stuff. So anything that you can't put in a URL to, that's deep web information, medical records, emails, bank account information, all that stuff consists of the deep web. And that's the majority of the internet. That's 96%. Now inside of the deep web is where we find this dark web thing. And how to explain what the dark web is. In 1995, Two mathematicians at the Naval Research Laboratory, uh, David Goldschlag and Paul Syverson, they came up with this concept called the onion router. That was 1995. And basically what that was, it was a way to wrap one IP into multiple IPs. So you, you take your IP address and you wrap it in layers upon layers like layers of an onion. All right. That's basically how the Tor router works, is it? And that's what it's called as the Tor router, the onion router, is by obscuring someone's IP information. And so what you do is you can you can have an IP address from anywhere in the, in, in the world, but finding who the real person is behind it is extremely difficult at that point in time. As many of our viewers know, <laughs> after I was arrested, the Secret Service offered me a job. And I worked for the Secret Service for almost a year until I went on this cross-country crime spree. Now, when I first heard of the Onion Router or the Tor browser, was while I was working for the Secret Service. We received this memo saying, hey, this is a problem. This can be used by criminals to commit crime. Now, when the Naval Research Laboratory came up with this idea, it wasn't meant for that. It was meant for operatives to be able to communicate with one another privately and anonymously. You know, if, if you have an operative that was in Iran or something like that, that way he could get messages out without anyone being able to track him. From that point, what we see happening is, is that the Onion Router goes open source. So it goes open source with the idea that people behind a, a country's firewall can use it. Dissidents can, can use it to get messages out or to visit internet sites that their country doesn't want them to visit. Or that whistleblowers can use it to get information out. But what happens is, and it, it always happens with technology, the first people to adopt it are criminals because they can use it to remain anonymous. They can use it to message each other and commit crimes and not be tracked at that point. So what we saw is, we saw that initially it was used for criminals to visit websites, to message each other. And then it goes from there to where we're getting to the point, and this happens, I'm guessing this happens 2006, something like this, that people start building websites on the Tor network itself. So nowadays you have forums, you have websites, you have uh, marketplaces, these darknet marketplaces that engage in crime that are hosted via, or you can only visit by using the Tor browser. So you didn't really find out about a Tor browser until you'd already been caught. <laughs> so how are you accessing the dark web without a Tor browser? Was that just when it was just like chat feature and that was basically all there was? There weren't actual websites built or how? So so what happens is, is the precursor that I built the precursor to the dark web markets. And what that basically is, is that is the the type of marketplace structure that you see on 
the dark web, the way the marketplaces work, the way the forums work. That's what we, we built with Shadow Crew. Now, Shadow Crew was a surface website at this point. We didn't have the, the Tor browser was not available to us when, when Shadow Crew first came online. So what happens is, is when, when Tor comes up and is able to be used by people, then they start to use it to visit surface web sites. So all the forums and marketplaces, they were on the surface web to begin with. The Tor browser comes into being and people then start using that to remain anonymous to visit these sites or to commit crimes. Now, as time goes on, people find out, well, we can actually build websites that you can only access by using the Tor browser. Mm -hmm. All right. And once that happens, we see this big revolution in cybercrime that happens. I see. Okay. I guess I didn't realize that it was a surface website. I mean, I know it was still like secure and you had to have a login and things right. like that, but that's a great explanation. I actually learned a couple of things myself, <laughs> so I guess, which isn't surprising to me, but so you really, you know, you talked about kind of, you know, where it is, how you get to it. Why does it attract criminal activity? I mean, other than, you know, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but it's attracting criminal activity because it's anonymous. Is it really, is it still anonymous? Well, that, that that's a very good question. So, we've seen we've seen the, over the past couple of years that a lot of these marketplaces and forums that are hosted via the Tor browser are are being busted. Law enforcement shutting them down. Last year, July fifth of last year, Alpha Bay, the largest criminal network on the planet, was shut down. It had two hundred forty thousand members when it was shut down. Two weeks later, Hansa Market was shut down as a follow up to the Alpha Bay seizure. Now, since that point. We've seen several news articles that kind of hint that federal law enforcement or even international law enforcement has some sort of exploit to identify some of the users. Now, that being said, in order for that exploit to work, basically my understanding is, is that you would have to take over, an attacker would have to take over every single node except for one that he controls. And at that point, all the traffic is routed through that node and you could identify users at that point. So you can do it like that. You can do it by tricking a user into downloading a file, things like that. So what we see time and again, most of the time, users who are on the Tor browser simply don't know how to use it properly. So they're surfing uh, surface websites at the same time they're surfing dark websites. They're downloading files via the Tor browser while they're hooked up to these forums and everything else. And as soon as you download a file, it identifies the real IP address that you're coming from. So th there are ways that law enforcement can use, even if there's not an exploit out there, there are ways law enforcement can identify users. It's not complicated to identify the people. Where it becomes complicated is if a user is good enough that he knows exactly how to use that Tor browser. If that happens, the, the, the possibility of him being identified is pretty low at that point. Okay, interesting. So it's the people that are not, that don't know exactly how to use it, that have kind of done Tor browser for dummies, but not <laughs> gone underneath well, it more. Which is, but also, which, you know, because law enforcement's been infiltrating it as well, right? Like they right. have which, people like you were at one point for the Secret Service or exactly. also just analysts. I mean, I've definitely met a few of the people who spent most of their professional lives on the dark web, but with a white hat and there's, you know, I wouldn't say it's an equal amount, but there's certainly over the years, it's become more of interest <laughs> for and multiple it, reasons. Oh, no. And it's it's kind of funny if you look at it. So the idea from a cyber criminal perspective is is really not to compromise the system so much as the humans using the system. OK. And the idea for law enforcement is not so much to compromise the system, the Tor browser, so much as the users using the Tor browser. So it's all about the human being on both sides of that equation. Mm. 
Okay. I see. Now, now, as far as why they use it, so you've got, and 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 let's be fair. I don't, I, before we start going really in, into dark web stuff, I don't want everyone to think that every single thing that's on the dark web is illegal. Mm. It's simply not. All right, uh, and no one really knows how big the dark web is. So is it is it one percent of the internet? Is it less than that? No one really knows because a lot of the sites come and go very quickly. A lot of the sites are only up a, a few hours a week. So hmm. no one is really able to gauge how big it is. But on the dark web, you can get educational files. You, there are forums that are legal. There are messaging applications that use the Tor browser that are legal. Email applications, the same thing. A lot of universities have information on the Tor, Tor network as well. Dissidents use it. Whistleblowers use it to get information out. There's a lot of, uh, of benefit from using the Tor browser. Now, that being said, of course, what it's known for is the illegal activity. And as far as illegal activity, anything you could imagine is there. So there's drug trafficking, there's financial fraud, there's, uh, there's child pornography, there's, there's weapon sales. Any number of things that you can possibly want as far as illegal activity goes, you can find on use, using the Tor browser or on what's called the dark web. Now, that being said, understand that not all of that information is just on the dark web. Credit information, credit cards can be bought and sold, and it's bought and sold every single day on Reddit, on Facebook, on all these surface forums as well, or surface websites. It's, it's, it's just that most of it is concentrated or, or it's better known to be on the dark web. Right. And I think, you know, it would be safe to say that in the last year, we've definitely seen a lot more usage of those surface web applications, specifically for fraud whether it be on Reddit, Facebook, there's even the private forums like Hidden Hand is one that, you know, you're a part of that I think is kind of genius on the organizers parts because the only way that you can get access to that site is by either showing that you are a criminal for lack of better words, right. or if you pay a large sum of money because they know that federal law enforcement cannot pay money to criminals. So they've kind of found this workaround. It should be said that the, the way that you've gotten in is because your handle on the dark web still has a lot of notoriety and <laughs> infamy. And so you were able to to prove that at least at one point in your life that you were that way. And so, you know, that's how you were able to get access to it. I just think that's important to, to note. But I mean, they're definitely getting more and more creative as like Alpha Bay being shut down. And I think from my perspective, one of the reasons why Alpha Bay and other sites that become big for buying and selling credit card information, as well as talking about various schemes against cardholders and against merchants, is that other activity goes on those as well. So Alpha Bay wasn't just a site for buying and selling payment fraud information, correct? Or talking about scamming people? Oh, no, not at all. So so if you look at really the, the advent of these dark web marketplaces begins with Silk Road with Ross Ulbrich. I was actually about to mention them too. <laughs> they came to mind as well. <laughs> so so when he set that site up, he basically set it up as a drug trafficking site. All mm -hmm. right. And he accepted Bitcoin. And that was that's the genesis for how Bitcoin becomes so popular and led into the mass adoption that we're seeing today. It begins with Silk Road. Now, Silk Road concentrated only on drugs. They weren't really interested in fraud or anything else like that. Not to say they didn't have it there, but mostly it was drug trafficking. Now, later on, we see that, that and it, it's kind of weird because it used to be that the fraudsters led the way that that cybercrime would operate, and then the drug traffickers mimicked that. Now what we're seeing is that the drug traffickers are, are leading the way, and fraudsters are mimicking that type of activity now. 
So it started with with Silk Road building that type of marketplace. Fraudsters started to see that, or, or, or financial cyber criminals started to see how that process was working. So then we see Evolution Marketplace pop up, which was fraud-centered, and they had drug trafficking. That They added that on as an extra until Alexander Kazas comes up, and he builds Alphabay. And Alphabay started as a fraud forum. Evolution Marketplace ended up exit scamming, which basically means that the two people who ran Evolution Marketplace, they decided one day they were going to steal everyone's money. They shut the website down, stole everyone's Bitcoin, walked away with $22 million. After wow. That, and the way yeah. they're able to steal everyone's money is that it's kind of like a marketplace, just like other marketplaces on the surface web, right? Where the people who own the platform are really in the center of those buying and selling goods, right? So at any time, or does it more have to do with Bitcoin? It's Bitcoin. The stores it's, there. It's, actually, okay. it's actually both. So you're right. They have, they have complete control of everything. But the way the marketplace is run is every single person has the Bitcoin wallet on that marketplace. And instead of withdrawing their money on a nightly fashion, most people just kind of leave it there. So if you've, if you've, if you've got 200 and say with Alphabet, if you've got 260,000 members, you've got 260,000 wallets there at least. Wow. So 260,000 wallets, all it takes is, you know, ten hundred dollars on each wallet. And all of a sudden you're, you're seeing a lot of money coming in. Right. Um, so Alphabet, when it was shut down, they seized from Alexander Kazas $24 million. He had built that as a fraud centered form and allowed drug trafficking to come in. Now, what happens is is drug trafficking is so huge on the dark web, and most of it is simply marijuana sales. But you see fentanyl on there, you see meth, you see heroin, you see all these really dangerous drugs as well. The profit potential is so high that a market has to allow that in if they're going to see any real profits generated for you know for the owners of the marketplaces. So again and again, we see that drugs are intermingled with financial cybercrime on the dark web. And do you think that because drugs are intermingled with it, that's why these dark web forums are shut down more than if it was just credit card fraud? Or do you think that that would also get the same attention? I really don't think financial fraud gets the same attention. I think the big financial frauds get the same attention. I think that we've gotten to the point where where most people are used to the idea of credit card fraud. That's almost an everyday occurrence. We know, We all know someone, if we've not been compromised ourselves, and I was compromised three times last year, Huh. But if, if I was compromised <laughs> twice this year there so you go. far, there you go. So, so it happens to us too. <laughs> to everyone. So if if you're not a victim yourself, you certainly know someone who is. It's it's we're used to that. What we're not used to is reading these stories of fentanyl killing mm-hmm. people. We're not used to seeing that. So there's still this huge outcry as far as drugs go. So I think what you see, and and that's really what you see on the dark web on these marketplaces right now is you see a lot of the people who are running marketplaces, they simply are they're getting to the point where they don't allow certain items to be sold on those marketplaces. Number one, fentanyl. Number two, handguns. <laughs> things like that. They don't want the pressure, like because they know that those are the top things, top priorities for law enforcement. Exactly. Right. That makes, it makes perfect sense. So let's now talk about kind of how is the dark web used to commit fraud against consumers. All right. So how is it used to commit fraud against consumers? What, what people need to understand is that everyone's information is already out there. So there's no such thing as protecting your information or making sure your information is not breached or compromised or released to criminals. It's already out there. Last year we had 1500 breaches reported of those 1,500 reported breaches, 2.6 billion records were compromised. That's just last year. That's just what was wow. reported. 
So your, your information is already there. So the problem becomes, as a criminal, where do you go to acquire that information? You have to have some form, some place, some home to visit to buy that those goods. And that home tends to be these marketplaces that are set up on the dark web. And you have things like Dream Market, you have the uh, Alpha Bay of last year, or the Silk Road, or the Sheep Marketplace, or the Evolution Marketplace, any number of things like that. Those marketplace names pop up basically to provide items for people to purchase and use. So what you see is, and I, I speak about this in a lot of presentations, for cybercrime to be successful, three things have to happen. You have to be able to gather data, commit the crime, and cash out. The problem is, is a criminal is not good in all three things. He's good in one thing. Sometimes he's good in two. It's rare that he's good in all three. So he has to be able to network with other people who are good in areas that he isn't in order for the crime to be successful. So say a guy knows how to get credit card information. He's very good at phishing information. That doesn't mean he knows how to use that credit card information. So he needs someplace to be able to hook up with someone, to network with someone that knows how to use it, either by partnering with them or selling the credit card data that he's getting for them to use. That's typically why and how the darknet markets work as far as consumer fraud goes. So you have a, you have a forum, basically a discussion type system where someone goes in and says, look, I've got this information on how to hit this specific merchant and someone will chime in. Well, you know, I've, I've been using this information and it works pretty good. Where are you buying your credit cards from? And they start sharing information all of a sudden and discussing how to commit the crime. And by that discussion and networking with other people, they become better criminals. They get better products. They, they hone their craft until they're getting to the point that they're all experts at it. And so just kind of to recap. So the way that people are buying the data to then use to commit fraud against consumers is on the dark web. The way that that data is captured is usually through hacking or phishing, correct? Usually it's through hacking or phishing, absolutely. Sometimes you get the insider stuff that's going on. Uh, a lot of the children's information, so you see a lot of kids' social security numbers and, and information being sold on dark web markets. From what I've seen, a lot of that information is coming from people actually working inside of the healthcare environment. So they're getting the data themselves from the records, and then they're selling it on the black market. That's so crazy to me. Like, I know we've talked about this before, kind of offline, but just people working in pediatrician's office, that this is, you know, a second income for them is yeah. to sell your child's social security number. And we're going to talk a lot about this in a upcoming episode because kids really are the number one victims of identity theft right now. And Brett, and, you know, I have a little bit of information, too, you know, really want to provide that information to everyone who is a parent because that's so important. It's just crazy to me that that's the case. But it also makes sense, especially in more rural, like, places where the cost of living is lower or what I really am getting at is that the pay is lower than it might be. And so, you know, they're still living paycheck to paycheck and need to survive and find the supplemental income and they feel like it's a victimless crime. I know that's something that, you know, you've discussed before, just, you know, how at one point in your life you felt like fraud was a victimless crime. And so you don't feel like you're really doing anything wrong. That is a lot of it. But understand that, you know, even with the kids' IDs, the price that they're getting for each child's information is extremely low. You can buy children's information that comes with their name, their date of birth, and their social 
for $2. So it's not like they're, they're I mean, yeah, they're, they're using the justification is why well, I need the money. I need to do something to make extra money. But, but it's not. Yeah, they're not making anything doing it, but you're still. But I mean, gosh, if you have, you know, a pretty big pediatrics wing or like, you know, at the hospital or something like that. I mean, say you have absolutely access to 10,000 kids, you know, information, that's 20 grand. I absolutely. mean, that's. I'm certainly not trying to advocate that that's a good thing by any means, but I'm just trying to justify it, I guess. I mean, you're, you're right. And, and usually the people who are selling kids' IDs, a lot of it comes from pediatricians, but a lot of it comes from just someone who has a who had access to maybe a hospital or something like that. They have thousands of records, and then you can buy the kids' information that they sit and they just happen to have that too. Adults' information sells for 3 to $4.00. Kids is two dollars, so it's. But the reason right. why kids is cheaper is there's probably twofold, right? So one is probably because there's so much of it, and then the other is probably that there is a little bit more work involved because they have to set up a credit report in that kid's name, right? Absolutely. So with kids, you're going to commit one of three types of fraud. You're going to commit tax fraud, which means that the criminal is going to file an income tax return, claim the child as an earned income credit. Mm -hmm. You're going to do that. You're going to commit synthetic fraud, which is what you mentioned, building a credit profile for that person, which takes some time. Or you're going to try to commit some sort of medical fraud. That's really the only way a child's information is going to be used to commit fraud as, as far as organized cybercrime goes. So it does take more time on that. But yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's all cheap. That's the problem is, is the, the, the avenue to entry, the price for entering into cybercrime for a criminal is extremely cheap right now. Wow, and that's just because of the sheer amount of information available. Absolutely, everyone everyone's information is there, so you yeah. get so much of it. And that, that's one of the thing I, I talk to people about. You know, someone will come up to me and say, "Well, you know, I've not I've not been a victim yet." <laughs> well, that doesn't mean you're not going to. You will. It's not a question of if, but when. Think of it like this: you know, you you've just not your name has not been drawn in the unluckiest lottery in the world yet, but it's coming. <laughs> Well, and to that point, like you spoke at a conference I organized um, annually at CMP Expo this past May, and you asked for volunteers in the audience to see if their information was there. And these are leading cybercrime experts, right? Like these are anti-fraud experts from all over the world, really, but a lot of them really big companies. And I think it was the second or third person in the audience, <laughs> their information was, was pulled. That was crazy to me. Like, wow, in this pool of people, if the second or third person is pulled, that means we really, it really is a question of, you know, when, not if, by right. all starts of the imagination. Like it just absolutely is. And it may not be that your credit card is stolen. It may be that there are accounts in your name that you don't know about because they're slowly paying on them or whatever it is to kind of keep this rate up. Or it may be that it's just not your turn yet, <laughs> as you said. No, I mean that's that's a lot of it, and you know that that typically is the way that that consumers are are that type of fraud against consumers is committed simply because so much information is there. That's where you go to purchase someone's information in order to commit fraud. Well, and I'm sure that people listening to this are wondering what they can do to get their name off that list. I guess I would say that that's a little bit less out of our control. I mean, using it Equifax is. is a very good example. At least here in the U.S., you know, Equifax is a leading credit reporting company and nobody really enlists in that themselves. It's you're enlisted in it on your behalf. So you weren't part of that by choice and you don't have a choice on how they store your data or if they're storing it in the correct way. And 
So, you know, you really don't have a lot of options there where you can have some control isn't if your information is stolen or not, which there still are ways that you can try to protect yourself with that for sure. You know, like easiest way, just because Brett mentioned the doctor's office is don't put your social security number or your kid's social security number on a document unless they say it is 100% needed. Most of the time it's not. That's just like one easy example of some of the stuff we'll talk about. But I think really where the power of control with consumers comes in mostly is trying to prevent that information from being used, not making it easy. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, I That's do. really where the power of control do. is. So, you know, th- we have to get to the point where we understand that people's information is already out there. Then how do you, from that point, how do you make sure that since your information is there, that a criminal cannot use it? What I talk about is, you know, you freeze your credit. So for children, that works great. A credit freeze stops all new account fraud. So for kids, that's great because that's really the only type of fraud a kid's going to be hit with is new account fraud. For adults, not so much. For adults, a credit freeze only stops new account fraud, which is only 4% of all Mm. identity theft. So that becomes a huge problem with that issue. So you also have to monitor all your accounts, place alerts on the accounts, things like that. I mean, it's it's simple stuff that you do, but it makes sure that you're not that low-hanging fruit that criminals love to pick. Yeah, I run into that all the time where people are like, oh, well, I have my credit frozen, so I'm good. It's like, well, actually, <laughs> actually <not>. um, <laughs> do you use the same password for more than one site? Do you use your credit card? You know, like all these other things. And a pet peeve of mine was, you know, especially when I worked kind of on the front lines and quotation marks in fraud operations was, you know, at times we would get calls from consumers whose card was used fraudulently on our website. And I would take those escalation calls and the first thing they would say is, well, I don't know how my card got, you know, first of all, they really, really wanted to know where that point of compromise was. How did their card number get stolen? How did it happen? Who did it? And then the second thing they would say is, well, I haven't used my card online, so I don't know how it could have been gotten out. And (laughs) here's what I'm going to say about both of those things. The first one is there is no way to know how your credit card number got out. And honestly, it doesn't matter. What matters is shutting that credit card down so they can't keep doing it. And if you're on my phone line saying, like, I want to know how and why and who and where, you're not calling your bank to cancel your card. And in those 20 minutes of you getting all worked up about that, that criminal has now spent even more money on your credit card. But also, it's just kind of a waste of energy, a waste of mental energy and space. I know that it's a total natural human reaction to want to catch the person or or understand it, but... It's just not necessary and it's not productive. Like it doesn't really change anything because even if you were to say, okay, I know exactly who stole it, what they use it for, where they are right this second, having law enforcement be interested in that is another uphill battle. (laughs) We discussed that on a previous merchant episode and we will again. And it's not law enforcement's fault necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's not a main priority that I don't think is the fault of anyone who is in rank and file in law enforcement. There might be some good discussions to be had on priorities and, you know, maybe apply the broken glass theory to (laughs) cybercrime. But that's another discussion. But then, you know, the other piece is, well, I didn't use it on the Internet, so I don't know how my card was stolen. Oh my gosh, it drives me crazy because from somebody who's been in e-commerce fraud prevention for well over, you know, 13 years at this point, I can tell you that most of the time credit cards aren't being 
taken from online companies to be stolen, but that is where they're used. That's where it's monetized. So usually the data comes from either phishing scams where the consumer unfortunately falls for it and provides their payment information or their bank account, you know, logins or whatever it is, or through breaches and hacks. And if you think about the largest, you know, breaches of credit card numbers that there are, well, I'm really sorry to my friends at these companies, but these were in the news many years ago. Target and Home Depot, it wasn't their online companies. It wasn't their online channels that were breached. It was Absolutely. their in-person channels. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know of several restaurants, you know, the because the security for online companies is very high. They have something called PCI that they need to adhere towards. And really, that's the way that credit cards numbers are full credit card numbers are stored, both electronically in person, like, you know, you can't even write down a full credit card number on a post-it note if someone calls in to place an order, all those different things. So there's a lot of regulation in place to make it so that online companies are not the weakest link, so to speak, when it comes to gathering those full credit card numbers. But as far as the easiest place to monetize those full credit card numbers, absolutely, it's the internet because it's anonymous, you know, it's anonymous to a certain extent. So those are two pet peeves that I hear quite often when people are, are victims of credit card fraud. And it, they're pet peeves not because like it makes you mad or I think people are being ignorant. It's just there's just not, you know, not good information out there. And it can be confusing to the hacking versus the monetizing. Just like sometimes it's easier for me to say I'm in cybersecurity even though I'm not because cybersecurity is protecting the data from being hacked. Whereas... I'm in the industry that's protecting companies from having that data be monetized. Right. So, and then, you know, so we talked a little bit about like how consumers are impacted or how fraud happens against consumers on the dark web. Primarily it's happening by that's where you're buying and selling that data to then monetize. But how are companies being victimized uh, or, and well, use, you know, how is the dark web u- being used to victimize companies? I guess is what <laughs> I mean, because... Sure. I believe it's completely different. It's kind it, of like it, it supply and demand, sort of. Yeah, it is different. You you can buy some companies' information on on some of these forums, but most importantly, what what these forums and and the darknet communities look at when they're looking at companies or merchants or or organizations in in general, is they're looking for people that have an exploit, or know that an exploit works someplace else, and then they start testing it. So you'll see. You'll see these groups of people that will talk about, say, a merchant. Well, this merchant is working here. You know, I'm able to commit credit card fraud at this merchant using this specific setup. So they share that setup with their group of people, and then all of a sudden it goes out to the wider audience as well. So basically what it is is it's the exchange of information. You have you have all these criminals working together to commit fraud, and they share each other's secrets. So, you know, I've got this merchant that I'm able to get computers from. And the other guy says, well, I've got this merchant that I'm able to get cell phones from. And they're like, well, let's partner, and we'll see how much stuff we can get. So they, they share it with everyone within their group, then it makes its way out to the community from there. And time and time again, we see that's typically the way that's done. As far as the larger breaches go, there are several different websites, both on the surface web and on the dark web, that sell tools to compromise or to breach into companies, financial institutions, anything else. The Zeus bot that we ran a few years ago, that was an off-the-shelf product that a person developed. He sold it for $2,500. It went out to commit over $100 million worth of fraud. Time and again, we see that 
It's the development of tools or services that are sold via the dark web services. It's the exchange of information, things like that. So it's, it's not, whereas consumers, you're buying people's PII, their personal information. It's not really that way when it comes to companies. With companies, it's, it's a more organized effort to look at a specific type of company or a specific vertical and say, okay, what kind of tool do we need to break into that and steal money or information? Who can I network with that has a tool or who can I buy that tool from? And then how do we use it as a group to commit this type of fraud? Right. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing that I kind of wanted to jump back to that I realized just now is something that I learned about the dark web, especially with consumers. It also applies to companies too, though, is kind of how that works. Like I used to think that once somebody's personal information was used and compromised once, it was kind of a one and done thing. Right. So I pictured that when my card was stolen then I canceled it. No one else is going to try to commit fraud again because it's a one-time purchase. Like I was almost picturing it like it was a physical item. There was only one of. Once my card was sure. canceled, rip it up, tear it, you know, throw it away, whatever. But then I started, once I canceled my card, then I got a phishing call from somebody pretending to be from my bank, which they were pretty, I mean, it, I came too close for what I do <laughs> and what I know to falling for it. I mean, I didn't fall for it, but I came close. And I believe that the way that they knew the name of my bank and the number to spoof on the caller ID and all that was because of the first six digits of my credit card that had been compromised months earlier. So can you talk about kind of how that's not the case? Like if you're a victim one, so you can continue to be a victim just of other tactics. I think that's sure, really important sure. so, and so goes with this. Uh, yeah, let's talk about overall on that. So say someone buys your, your social security information and your date of birth, and they, they can buy it for $3. Now that person, that, that specific cyber criminal, he specializes in one type of fraud. He may only do tax fraud, or he may do social security account takeover, or set up HELOC loans, or do student loan fraud, or take over bank accounts. Whatever that is, he, he's only using your information for that one specific type of crime. The problem is, is once he gets through with that, he forgets about you, but all those other types of fraud that he didn't commit, you're still wide open for. So the next guy will come along and buy that same information that the first guy bought and then use it for a different type of fraud, for taking over a social security account or setting up a bank account or anything else like that. So you see over and over again, it's not a one-time affair. Once your information is out there and it's being bought and sold, it continues to be purchased and used over and over and over again until you finally get to the point where that person, that victim, has no credit worthiness whatsoever as far as a cyber criminal goes. Well, then, even then, the crime's not over because you can create fake IDs with that information on there. So it's it's a continuing crime. It never, it never stops. I've spoken to people. I'm, uh, I'm on the cover of AARP magazine next month. And one of the people that's interviewed in that, she has been an identity theft victim for over a decade. Just oh my continued gosh. to be hit over and over and over. She put a credit freeze on her account. The, the fraud stopped. She was monitoring everything. <laughs> so the fraud stopped while she was monitoring her accounts and she had the freeze on. As soon as she lifted the freeze and stopped monitoring, she got hit with it again. That same thing actually happened to my chiropractor. He's wow. pretty sure the same person is doing it over and over again, which I told him isn't always the case. But, right. you know, because as you know, when you whenever you say you're in, you know, anti-fraud, you always hear everybody's fraud stories. So that's how I know that that happened to my chiropractor, because why wouldn't I? <laughs> and, uh, you know, another example is 
Last year, there were a couple of credit card issuers. I'll leave their name out. But, Thank you. <laughs> uh, there were a couple of credit card issuers so that if, if a criminal bought that specific card and used it for fraud, so the, the customer, the victim, has the card shut down. But the problem was is the algorithm to guess the card number, the reissued card number, was extremely simple. So what was happening was is the fraudster would use the card until it was shut down. He knows the victim is having a new card ordered. He would actually know the card number before the victim had the new card in hand and was able oh to Oh my gosh. The, the wow. CVV didn't change at all. The three-digit security code didn't change at all. The expiration date went up by like three years and two months, something like that, something weird like that. It was a really simple algorithm for the, the last four digits of the number, actually the last six digits of the number mm -hmm. of the credit card. And they were able to guess that pretty quickly. That went on for a good six months of people being hit over and over and over again wow. with that. Well, and I know when EMV, you know, caused banks to reissue credit card numbers, a lot of them didn't get new credit card numbers, just new credit card expiration dates. Right. And then they would decline those transactions if the expiration date wasn't right. But it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to know what they're using for the expiration date, like how to change it. Cause I figured it out really fast how many you, you know years and months they added. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think for companies that's good for you to know as well, because it's similar to you in the stance that when they are talking about, Oh, we found an easy way to exploit. That means you're on their radar. And that means that even when you close that loophole, they're probably going to find another one. I was actually just talking to a pretty large marketplace yesterday about that because she said, you know, we've kind of not been on anyone's radar for big, giant fraud rings until this summer, and we're getting hit pretty hard. And she said, I think I've figured it out, though. And I said, well, it's not like you close the door and they don't come back. It's more That's like it. you close the door and they look for a window. And then you close that window and they're looking for a crack or wherever <laughs> else it is. It's kind of like having ants, right? They'll find That's any it. way to get in your That's house if, if they know you've got the good stuff in there. And so I think that that's really important to convey that the dark web is a tool that criminals are using to exploit both consumers and businesses, but that it's not just like if you're exploited, if you're hit once, they're going to, you know, and you fix it, they're going to go away. And so... Really, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about that. We don't like to talk about problems without giving solutions, but today's episode is kind of all talking about, you know, how the dark web is utilized so that then we can talk more about these tactics, specific tactics, and then how to protect yourself from those tactics. So that's why it probably feels like we're scaring the crap out of you and not <laughs> giving you any prevention tools that's not intentional. It's more just for the sake of time. We don't want right. to, you know, go too far down that rabbit hole, but know that in future episodes, we will definitely discuss that. It's not just a platform for us to, you know, be scary. But I think that it also hits home the need to be vigilant, to think about it, to consider before you sign up for a new account online or before you click on something in an email or before you willingly give your bank account information to somebody who called you asking for you to verify your bank account number. All of those things, like this is why it's important to be a little bit extra vigilant, a little more cautious, a little more skeptical before you're sharing certain things on Facebook or clicking on things or filling out a quiz, which I will definitely be going into how <laughs> well that can impact fraud <laughs> at a later date because that is a personal pet oh, peeve it's huge. of mine. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not just a pet peeve. It's also just it drives you crazy because I don't think people realize they, you know, you just think it's harmless and 
they want you to think things like that are harmless, right? That there's not any impact. So I think it's important for consumers and businesses to, I think the first step of prevention is knowing what's out there and knowing what the threats are. A couple other things I just wanted to ask you really fast was, the first one is, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but how is using the dark web changed fraud over the years? Because, I mean, you started before the dark web really was in existence, but you guys basically built the method of using forums and sharing information with each other and how valuable that is to sure. a, to a criminal. And then it's now grown <laughs> exponentially. Well, so talking about the the development of cybercrime, and I, I was in cybercrime when it was a small crime. I saw it turn into a business now it's 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 really an economy now. So when cybercrime kind of started out, basically what we had is we had the these IRC message boards, and they were kind of a rolling message system that you were ne- never able to look at or gauge or save or anything else. So you really never knew what happened the day before. There was no way to go back and look at things. With Shadow Crew, we kind of established a way to do that using a form structure. We we established a trust mechanism, all these other things that define the way that the marketplaces and forums should operate. And that stayed like that until we saw Bitcoin and the Tor browser come up. So the Tor browser, what it allowed people to do was to remain anonymous and to build anonymous networks online that people could use, that criminals could use to communicate and commit crimes. What Bitcoin allowed was people to basically move large amounts of money quickly and fairly anonymously. It was originally thought it was anonymous. Now we know Bitcoin's not, but there are several cryptocurrencies out now that are anonymous. There's Monero, there's Dash, all these other things that can be used in an anonymous fashion to launder money. That continued to be the way cybercrime operated until really last year. So last year with Alphabay, so what law enforcement did was is they shut down Alphabay. They had actually compromised and seized another dark web site called Hansa Market. What they did was is they publicly shut down Alphabay. They directed all the users over to Hansa Market. Two weeks later, they shut down Hansa Market publicly as well. That caused so much paranoia and dissension within organized cybercrime groups that they really didn't know what to do. The trust mechanism was almost shattered at that point. So what we see now is you still have to have a large communication channel in order for people to network, in order for them to exchange information. But the actual buying and selling of products or services, we're starting to see that's going on to a different type of channel. One of these smaller encrypted messaging channels like Jabber or WhatsApp or something like that is used now to actually commit, not to commit to crimes, but to buy products and services for illegal purposes. So it's definitely evolved because it's now its own economy, essentially. I mean, and to your point, like you can buy like one criminal may just be selling tutorials on how to commit crime. That's going to make them a very low man on the totem pole when and if that site is shut down. But they're being funded by criminal operations. Absolutely. And understand, I mean, yeah, he's low man on the totem pole. But say say he's selling a tutorial that talks about how to get iPhones. And he's selling that tutorial for 50 or $75. If he sells a hundred of those a month, he's pocketing a pretty decent amount of money not to do really anything. Well, and they don't so, have to pay taxes, right? Absolutely. It's... <laughs> absolutely. Being self-employed myself, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> so it, it, it's one of these things where, you know, this is a problem now. Cybercrime is a problem that governments cannot arrest their way out of. It's too big for that. Last year, Mm -hmm. the the global losses were $450 billion because of cybercrime. 
So well, it, and I actually read something the other day, and I don't have it right in front of me, but it was something like for every one minute, it's like $1.8 million in cybercrime losses, and that's almost 2,000 people a minute that are victims. It's, it's not huge. going anywhere. No. No, if anything, it's gotten a lot bigger since you and I first started Amen. Um, our careers. <laughs> now, our careers were on different sides of the fences for a long time, but <laughs> it has changed so much. And it's funny, like, honestly, right before recording this, Brett and I were trying to remember the date of when something happened. And it was, I guess, that something is important. It was when Alberto Gonzalez, who was a business associate of Brett's, hacked into Heartland Payment Systems. And I was trying to remember it based on where I was working when I remembered that information. And I was like, oh, I think it was probably the spring of 08. And Brett's trying to remember it based on when he went to prison. <laughs> That's true. That was my calendar. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I went to prison in 2009. So it had to have happened before then because his arrest led to my arrest. I mean, it's just – it cracks me up how – how often that happens <laughs> or how he'll look at something on the dark web and know that a specific company is being hit and I know it because that company has told me or I know why because I know that company lost a fraud manager or changed their systems or whatever it is. So it has some value to work together with people from, you know, other with other works. sets of perspectives. <laughs> so finally, let's, you know, I know we need to get this wrapped up so we can work on other topics as well. But can you provide a few highlights? You provide some examples throughout this, but a few highlights of examples of fraud that you're currently seeing against both groups. So, sure. you know, so uh, what are you seeing talked about on the dark web or even on surface web forums targeting sure. consumers? So, so ju just briefly some of the topics that that are current right now as far as cybercrime goes. So you've got what's called friendly fraud, which is basically refunding. The criminals order a product, they have it shipped, it's delivered, then they claim they didn't get it. Now, Online merchants like, are calling that lost package fraud, by the way. Right, so we'll have two different, <laughs> there you two different titles for one yeah. thing, criminals which call, happens all the time. Call refunding is what they call <laughs> it. It's, it's all refunding. But, and uh, I'm hearing profit, it referred to as lost package. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, uh, the profit potential for a criminal is easily $10,000 a month doing that. Easily. So you see that going on. You see uh, a lot of new account fraud happening right now. So because of EMV, because of the chips coming in, the, the physical counterfeit credit card stuff is, is, is going down. Well, these criminals, again, they're not going to stop. They're going to find another path. That path tends to be new account fraud. So it's easy enough to get someone's credit report, find out where they don't have accounts, and then set up new accounts for those where they don't have them. And it's easy enough to have the mail redirected or have an address added onto the credit report. And we'll talk about that in future episodes. So you've got that. You've got synthetic fraud, which is basically stealing a kid's identity, their social security number, building a credit profile using that social security number, but with a different name, different date of birth cashing out using that. It's, uh, that's highly profitable for criminals as well. Of course, there's the, there's the old staple of account takeovers and credit card fraud. That's being talked about religiously every single day. That's really the most popular topics that are going on right now. Well, and you were talking about just how lucrative it is for criminals. I mean, this is something that you don't usually talk about and for good reason, but I think it's important for people to know that when Brett was arrested, he was making well over six figures a week. That's why these criminals don't give up and get a job at McDonald's when one door closes. That's why when we'll talk a lot about EMV and how that shifted things, you know, the fact that you have a chip in your credit card probably doesn't impact your day or your life very much more than the fact that you have to now insert the chip instead of swipe your card. But it has impacted 
cybercrime and fraud so much in the last few years since that change. You know, a big reason why people who committed fraud on the previous type of credit cards didn't just go off and get legitimate jobs is that they were making a lot of money and not having to pay taxes. And then to have to go from that to $10 an hour, you know, $7 an hour for an entry-level job doesn't make a lot of sense to them in their head. I'm certainly not trying to advocate for that, but and I know you aren't either. Oh, <laughs> um, no, if, no. if anyone I knows that it's not glamorous. Well, right. <laughs> and I should say that I'm surprised you didn't correct me this time, but you always do. When I say Brett was making $100,000 a week, what? how do you always correct me? Well, no, I, I didn't make any money. I stole money. And that's right. that's one of the things. You know, there's no such thing. If you're committing cybercrime, there's no such thing as making money. You're stealing money. Now, you're putting a lot of hours into stealing money. I was on a computer, sometimes 16 hours a day. But you're always stealing things. And what a lot of cyber criminals don't realize is, is that it's not just stealing money. You're also adopting a, a life of deceit. You're, you're mm-hmm. lying to your friends, to your family. And when everything goes south, and it does, everything does go south. So when that happens, all that comes back to hit you right in the face. All, all the money you've stolen, they take all that. All the stuff that you've bought with that stolen money, they take that. Your friends, you don't have any friends because you've spent your life lying to them. Mm-hmm. And they realize that at that point. Your family, well, your family, yeah, they're suffering because they love you. But at the same point, you've lied to them your entire life at that point. That's what I did. The consequences are such that if someone really understood it, if a criminal really understood what the consequences were, I really don't understand how he or she could commit crime at that point. Well, but you're one of the few that, I mean, you had an opportunity for reform and for looking at things and thinking about it and and really honestly tapping into your conscience whereas a lot of people don't have that opportunity and so i that's why i just think that your genuineness and your information is such a value and that's why we created this podcast because the information that you and i have picked up along the way in both of our career paths that have since you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> cross paths. That's true. Um, and it, you know, at an intersection, does no good if they if it stays in our head and if we aren't helping people. And so, I think it was really important to kind of share with people your genuineness and also that while we talk about these things in very matter of fact way, we know that at the end of the day, it impacts people. And we both have a heart for wanting to help those people who have been victims to this, as well as companies that have been victims to this and. You have learned throughout the many years of your reformation that it wasn't a victimless crime, that there were companies that had to pay a lot of money and that money then, you know, gets passed on to either their consumers or in other places, the countless consumer victims and all of that. So with that, I know that we should probably wrap this up, but it was good to be able to better understand the probably the main tool that is used by everyone committing fraud to either gain information or gain the data to commit fraud. And then in our next episodes, we'll be really diving into those topics, you know, what it is and how it is and how to protect yourself. All right. Sounds good. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. You know, we we hope you've learned a lot and we got so many topics to cover to help you protect you and your family from fraud. So please subscribe to Online Fraudcast to be alerted to when a new fraudcast is out. And because we're new, please tell your friends, rate and review wherever you can to help others learn about these topics as well. 
And we want to hear what you love so far about the podcast, how we can improve, and what topics that you want to hear us discuss on the podcast. So you can find Online Frogcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or find us individually on LinkedIn, or email us at info at onlinefrogcast.com. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. 